Well, thank you, Amy, for your testimony. Um, we truly thank God for you, and we rejoice in the work that God has done in your life, saving you from sin and causing you to mature in Christ. <clears throat> and as Elder Bob shared, we look forward to uh, seeing what God will do in your life as you help Marcus um, during those final weeks, finals and midterms of seminary and his future ministry. Praise God for, for, again, what God has done. Well, good to hear about um, uh, Nolan, uh, Robert Hahn, uh, almost Maximus, but <laughs> Nolan's a good choice, I think. Um, had the privilege of going out there on Tuesday night and uh, seeing Nolan myself, a beautiful baby, and uh, we rejoice with the Hahn family. And rejoice to hear how Lindsay is such a helper at home. Um, that's the model that we're shooting for at our home with Elizabeth. Um, she's, what, 22 months, but we want to teach and train her to be a Proverbs 31 woman um, one of these days. So we, <clears throat> we are um, you know, vigorously involved in, in teaching and training her to serve her family and help her mom and minister to her dad. And we have a two-pronged approach to teaching her. Uh, we teach her didactically, right? We sit her down and we exegete the key passages of Scripture and we remind her what her role is in light of her being born as a woman. So our priorities at home. <clears throat> and then we teach, we train her, we show her, we model for her how that, what that looks like. So we, <clears throat> um, you know, Serene brings me uh, maybe some snacks. She models it. She takes it back to Elizabeth and has Elizabeth um, bring the snacks to me as well. And through repetition, we train her to serve her family and serve her dad. And she's still young, so she drops a lot of food around the house. <laughs> so if you look at our carpet, you'll see stains all over the place. Um, it was two weeks ago, she brought corn dogs and ketchup, and that wasn't very smart of us. <laughs> you know, uh, needless to say, I didn't get to eat the corn dogs because they're strewn all over the carpet. But that's how we learn, right? <clears throat> whether uh, in life or school, sports, especially in our Christian faith, we learn two ways. We, we tell those who are teaching us, teach us. Secondly, show us. Teach us the truth. <clears throat> and then maybe more importantly, more powerfully, model for us the truth as well. That's what it takes for us to learn important truths. And the Bible employs the same methods. The Bible is replete with direct teachings, clear instructions, direct commands, repeated throughout the Bible, teaching us the truth of God's Word. But also, and thankfully, the Bible teaches us by way of example, um, by describing the example of, of God Himself of Jesus Christ. And also, by describing to us the example of godly saints, godly Christian men and women. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, I, I cherish these examples in the Bible. Examples of men like Abraham, and Job, and David. Um, Nathan, the courage that he had to rebuke the king, and to say to him, you're the man that has sinned against the Lord. I cherish examples like Ruth, like Esther, 
examples, even in the New Testament, of, of Paul and Peter and Timothy. And you know, the Gospels are full of such examples. Maybe names not as noteworthy as the names that I just mentioned, but as we go through them, I'm sure many of you will recognize these examples and how God has used them to help you learn, help me learn important biblical truths. Let me just highlight to you in the Gospels five models of Christian character. These are five men and women who exemplify a certain trait, a certain character trait in the life of a Christian. The first one is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. The royal official in John 4, he modeled to us what faith in God's Word looks like. We learn about that in Romans 4. We learn about that in Romans 10. We learn about that directly taught to us in the Scriptures. But in John chapter 4, this royal official, he models, he practices, and he reveals to us what it actually looks like to trust in the Word of God. Our Lord was in Cana and Galilee, a certain royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum, comes to Jesus, his son is near death, and if you are a, a father of a sick child, you know what that's like, the helplessness, just um, inner turmoil of seeing your child ill and in pain, uh, you know what that's like, and he goes to Christ, and in verse 47, he went to him and begged him, pleaded with Christ to come and heal his son who was close to death. Jesus replied to him, verse 50, You may go, your son will live. And then, with one sentence, John describes this man's example and reveals to us what it looks like to believe in the Word of God. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. For him, faith was a verb. He took, Jesus said it, and that was all that was necessary. He didn't need any more promises. He didn't need Christ to sign a contract. He didn't need Christ to perform any miracles or any additional promises. Soon as Jesus said, you may go, your son will leave, live, at that moment he departed because he took Jesus at his word. He left for home and on his way home he found out at the precise moment that Jesus uttered those words, his son was healed. The second model comes from Luke chapter 7, the Roman centurion. And this man exemplifies to us what humble faith in Christ Jesus looks like. He models for us humble faith. Here in Luke 7, a centurion, uh, a centurion servant whom his master valued highly, highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus, so he sent some elders of the Jews to Christ, asking Christ to heal his servant. He didn't go, go on his own. He sent some Jewish elders to go in his stead. When these elders came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, and quote, this is what the elders said, This man deserves to have you do this. This man deserves this miracle because he loves our nation 
and he has built our synagogue, end quote. So Jesus thought to himself, oh, this man deserves my miracle, huh? This man deserves my attention. Let me go myself and see if this is true. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him to tell him exactly what he wanted them to say. Quote, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. So these Jewish elders misrepresented the heart of the centurion. Centurion says, I sent these men because not only am I undeserving for you to come into my household, I'm undeserving to even talk to you. Just say the word and I know my servant will be healed. That's humble faith. Acknowledging his unworthiness to alone have Christ be present in his home, let alone even talk to Christ. Christ's response, um, everything is possible. Your son, your, your servant will be healed. I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Your servant shall be healed. Third model of Christian character, Christian truth is, and I love this one, Mark chapter 9. I think this is worthy of us turning there. Uh, Mark 9, I've, I've used this in my, in my shepherding my own heart in preaching the gospel to the lost, encouraging those who are struggling with faith. This man, this father models, models for us honest faith. I mean, sincere faith. Um, you know, what real faith looks like in the real world. Uh, Mark 9, verse 17, a man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I've brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and he becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Verse 21, Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus asked, If you can? What do you mean, if you can? Everything is possible for him who believes. In response to this, verse 24, Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's real faith. That's, that's honest faith. Lord, I believe. But you need to help me to overcome my unbelief. There is a part of my heart where I don't believe. I struggle with faith. I struggle with doubt, with fear, with anxiety. My faith is so weak. Without your help, I cannot believe in you. Help me overcome my unbelief. The fourth model is found in Luke 18. And it is found in the most unlikeliest of men, a tax collector. And this man models for us um, true repentance, humble repentance. This is the heart of Christianity, is it not? Christians used to be called the repentant. 
Because for us, repentance was not a once-in-a-lifetime event. Repentance was not past tense. It was present tense. To be a Christian was to be repentant. was to be broken and contrite, humble before God, hating sin and loving the holiness of Christ. And this task collector uh, models that character trait. Luke 18, verse 9, To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up, he prayed about himself, and he said, quote, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. God, I thank you I am not like I am not a robber, an evildoer, adulterer, or even like this tax collector. On the way into the temple, he noticed this tax collector approaching the temple to worship. So in his prayer, he says, God, I thank you that I am not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He could not even approach the front of the temple. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and he said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. This man models to us true repentance. He acknowledges his sinfulness and he appeals to God's mercy, appeals to God's grace. He doesn't talk about his own righteousness doesn't talk about other men. He sees himself as a sinner needing the mercy of God. Nothing more, nothing less. And Christ says, This man went home justified before God because he was humble in his repentance. Now the fifth model is found in John chapter 12, our passage for this morning. And from Mary... And I think, man, we have a lot to learn from, from women, right? I mean, I'm a firm believer in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, that women are not to exercise authority and teach over a man. At the same time, I believe men have a lot to learn directly from women, from their example, from how they live their Christian life. If men only look to other men for Christian uh, examples, um, that's wrong, that's unbiblical, that's, you know, that's pride. I mean, you know, adjectives go on and on. I mean, the Bible is clear. And we must learn from other women concerning faith and godly character. And we must learn from Mary's example here in John 12. And what do we learn from her? We learn about worship. We learn true worship. And this is the first thing we want to learn as Christians. Right? Once God saves us, what's the appropriate response? What's the right response? The only right response to grace given to us on the cross is worship. Right? It's praise. It's thanksgiving. So if you're a day-old Christian, you must be asking us, teach me to worship. How do I worship in spirit and in truth? Because that's what I want to do. This is why God has saved me, to be a worshiper. Will someone teach me what it means to be a true worshiper 
we want to do that, we ought to turn to John 12. Because in all of the scriptures, I propose to you this morning, there is no one who is a better example as a worshiper of Christ. No better example. She is a model of true worship. Mary of Bethany is a timeless representative figure of the true Christian worshiper. She is, she is just, just a model of it. She is what worship ought to look like in every believer. And, you know, the placement in the gospel is perfect. That it comes right after the pragmatism of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Last week we learned that these men were only interested in their authority, their position, their fame, their monetary, uh, you know, materialistic, uh, um, just things in their lives. And therefore, it, because of their sinful desires, it sets them up for pragmatism and they conspire to kill Christ. Contrasted to that is the example of Mary, her worship. And so just by that, it tells me that the answer to pragmatism is worship. The appropriate way to respond to the sinful pragmatism of our heart is not just to try harder. It's not to just just work at it longer or harder. The appropriate response to the sinful pragmatism of our heart is a clear vision of Christ and to respond with heartfelt worship of Christ. So for the rest of our time, I want to just think about worship. Consider Mary's example of worship and how we are to worship our Lord. Now, just... uh, what is worship? Let's give you a few definitions here. Um, a commentator said, Worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and overpowering love in the presence of that most ancient mystery, that majesty who is our Father in heaven. Tozer said, Worship is the humble response of regenerate men to the self-disclosure of the Most High God. It is based upon the work of God. It is achieved through the activity of God. It is directed to God. It is expressed by the lips in praise and by the life in service. William Temple said this, quote, Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by His holiness, the nourishment of mind with His truth, the purifying of imagination by His beauty, the opening of the heart to His love, the surrender of will to His purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration. It is the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. And therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. 
Worship is the clear theme of not just the passage before us this morning, but worship. The concept of worship dominates the entire Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the one connecting idea is that of worship. Therefore, worship is not an addendum to the Christian life. It is not an extracurricular activity. It is not something that we tack on to one of the many responsibilities that we have as a Christian. No. Worship is the Christian life. In fact, Paul says in Romans 12.1 that all of the Christian's life is to be viewed as a sacrifice of worship to God. We don't live a segmented Christian life. It is wholly devoted to God. Our lives are to be offered as a living sacrifice, as a worship to our King. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Even the mundane things of eating or drinking, whatever we do in life, it is to be all for the worship of God, the glory of God. With that said, as background, let's turn to John chapter 12. Look at our text this morning. If you've been with us for some time now, you've, you've seen firsthand the growing animosity and hostility from the religious leaders of Israel against our Lord. Opposition has been growing for some time now. It, it really started from John chapter 5, at least in the Gospel of John, where the Jewish leaders were intent on killing Jesus. In chapter 7, there's an effort that is made to arrest him. In chapter 8, an attempt is made to stone him. Twice in chapter 10, they seek to murder Christ. Because it is the hostility is so heated, he leaves Jerusalem and he goes to Galilee. But when... He hears of Lazarus' de- uh, um, sickness and, and death. Our Lord returns to Bethany. In John 11, he found that Lazarus had been dead for four days with Mary and Martha present and a great crowd that has gathered to witness Christ. Our Lord performs this most amazing and public miracle, raising of Lazarus after he's been dead for four days. We saw it last week. This incurs just the final commitment upon on the on part of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the scribes. The Sanhedrin confirm an official edict. They conspire to arrest and murder Christ. Therefore, our Lord retreats to Ephraim, and as Passover draws near in John 12 there is an air of excitement and anticipation. People wonder, this, um, the greatest of all feasts in the nation of Israel, will Jesus make an appearance? Will Jesus dare show His face when the Jewish leaders have declared Jesus a wanted man? And we know, of course, that our Lord is not afraid. This is why He has come. No one takes his life from him. He offers it on his own will. He most certainly will appear in Jerusalem. So in John 12, we need to note this. It is a turning point. 
from this point on, he's done with public ministry. From chapter 12 on, he devotes himself to private ministry. He directs his attention to the, to the disciples. And here, we see the words of Christ in red again and again and again, all directed to his disciples, preparing them for his imminent death. In fact, by the time, by John chapter 12, the crucifixion of Christ is barely a week away. So, six days before Passover, our Lord came to Bethany where Lazarus was, verse 1, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Matthew 26 tells us that this was the home of Simon the leper, apparently a man that Christ had healed from leprosy. They gathered together and they gave a dinner in the honor of Christ. They gave a dinner for Him there. And the three uh, siblings were all present. Martha, you know, she's the one. Expert cook, I guess. Like, like Luke 10. She's serving. Lazarus was also present. And Mary comes on a little later in the scene. Verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary does something that, that was amazing, extraordinary. She anoints Christ, anoints her feet, His feet, and wipes it with her hair. Now, do you remember Mary? Now, there are seven Marys in the Bible. Make sure you have the right Mary in mind as you look at John 12. She's the one. You know, our Lord comes, and He, he knows in John 11 that Lazarus is dead. I'm sure his heart is torn, but He approaches the gravesite. He sees Martha grieving and weeping. You know, Martha, I don't know, a little different, older woman, older than Mary, Christ says, well, let's go to the tomb. He sees Mary crying and weeping. And, and Lord's response directly to Mary's tears is what? He weeps in response to Mary's weeping. There was a definite intimacy in their relationship. Our Lord had a special heart toward Mary because Mary had a special heart toward Christ. Remember Luke chapter 10? Our Lord was in their home and Mary was busy serving Jesus and the disciples and she was getting flustered with all the preparation. And what is Mary doing? Mary is sitting um, next to Christ, listening to every word that flowed from His lips. Martha was angry, commands Jesus Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. The Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So Christ praises Mary for her heart of of diligent learning, her attentiveness to His Word. And it seems that Mary was perhaps the best listener that Jesus ever had. 
she understood what the disciples failed to grasp. It seems that she understood the many predictions that our Lord had made about His death. She not only understood these words, she believed that Jesus came to die, not to start a rebellion, not to usurp the authority of Rome and to establish an earthly kingdom. She apprehended the true meaning of Christ's words, that His was a spiritual kingdom, that He came to save and to, to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to save God's people from their sins. She understood that He would greatly suffer in His death. The twelve, they were caught up in the carnal desires. They were busy making plans for the future administration of Christ. They were arguing about who was going to be vice president, who was going to be chief of staff, who was going to oversee the department of treasury. But Mary, she understood that Christ would suffer and Christ would die and that Christ's death was near. It is very probable that as they were gathered at this dinner in honor of Christ, very probable that she was the only one who understood the significance of this dinner. And that this thought occurred to her, this may be the last opportunity for me to show my love for Christ. My last opportunity to worship Him to express my devotion to Him before He dies on the cross for my sin. So with that mindset, heart of worship, in an act of unmeasured love, Mary poured the perfume upon Jesus as He reclined at the table. And so above all, it was an act of worship motivated by love. From Mary's worship, anointing Christ, we learn four truths. We learn four truths about worship from Mary's anointing of Jesus. Number one, we learn that worship, that worship is our highest calling. That worship of Jesus is the highest priority of our lives as Christians. You know, Judas is angry, you know. Pragmatic Judas, he sees a year's wages. We could have sold that. And I could have pocketed my 15% and used the rest to feed the poor. What a waste. And because he's so indignant in his heart, he can't be silent. He expresses his utter frustration at Mary's act. What is Christ's response? Verse 10. Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus calls Mary's act of worship beautiful. That's awesome. So any, any worshiper that comes to Christ and pours out his or her love towards Christ, motivated by pure love for Him, desiring to honor Him, Christ calls that beautiful. This and other verses like it confirm the absolute priority of worship above evangelism, above missions, above ministry. 
The Bible tells us that edification and evangelism, they are necessary and important, but they are an overflow. They are acts that come from worshiping God. That the primary essential in life is worship. Commentator said, quote, Genuine worship is, is the supreme service a Christian can offer to Christ. There is a time for ministering to the poor, the sick, the naked, and imprisoned. There is a time for witnessing to the lost and seeking to lead them to the Savior. There is a time for discipling new believers and helping them grow in the faith. There is a time for careful study and teaching of God's Word. But above all else that the Lord requires of His people is their true worship, without which everything else they may do to Him, due to His name, is empty and powerless. For Judas, it was a waste. For Judas, it wasn't a priority. But for Mary, it was her highest priority. And Christ affirms that truth. That's a great lesson for all of us here this morning. A great lesson for us as individual Christians. great lesson for us in terms of the church universal. We need to ask ourselves this question, what is my priority in my life? What is my non-negotiable? Right? What is the one non-negotiable that I can have that will help me fight my pragmatism? That will help me wage war against sinful pragmatism? Beyond individuals, as a church, what is our priority as we gather together as believers? Sad to say, in the church today, the priority of worship is largely missing. I see this trend, and I'm sure many of you would agree, we see this trend in the modern church, where the church is majoring on the minors. The church is in the thick of thin things. Churches are filled with activities, but little worship. They are big on ministry, but small on adoration. They are mile-wide with programs and methods, yet inch-deep in terms of true worship and adoration. The church is disastrously, tragically pragmatic. We hear of pool tables, bowling alleys, and juice bars in churches. We hear about Christian dances, Christian dramas, and Christian comedians. And all the while, true worship of Christ eludes us. Church has become like McDonald's, a place for food folks and fun. A.W. Tozer called worship the missing jewel of the Christian church. Whereupon churches no longer call their services, services, worship services. A gather where we, where we give our worship to Christ. No. Churches now call their services celebrations. Where we gather to, to celebrate. The service celebration is geared towards meeting the needs of the church. Songs are man-centered. Messages are man-centered. And all the while, worship of Christ is set aside. Mary's act reminds us and teaches us the absolute priority of worship. Secondly, it teaches us that the worship of Christ is the chief purpose of life. It teaches us that the worship of Jesus is the chief purpose of life. 
first uh, pillar of Westminster, Westminster Catechism says that man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Worship is the occupation of eternity. In a sense, true sense, worship is the whole point of everything. Worship of Christ is the purpose of history. It is the goal of the whole Christian story. As I said, worship is not one segment of the Christian life among others. Worship is the entire Christian life. It is the reason for our existence as a body of Christ and as believers. Redemption is the means. Worship is the goal. This was why we were saved. This is why God saved us. So that He might create a people who will worship Him. The primary reason we are redeemed is not so that we don't go to hell. It's not just so that we go to heaven. The reason we were saved is for the benefit of God. So that He might be honored and worshipped. God saved us not for our benefit, but for His. Here in John 12, Mary was fulfilling the purpose of her life. A beautiful thing. It it really is the answer to pragmatism. It teaches us, reminds us, that worship is an end unto itself. That worship is not a means to another end. Let me me illustrate this. You know, I'm 34 now, and well, I've been to, I think, more funerals than weddings. You know, I, I started out like two to one, three to one weddings, but in the past few years, funerals have caught up, and I expect that to continue. Probably one of the saddest funerals I've ever been to was when I was a youth pastor, and one of our youth youth students was was murdered. Um, he was a sophomore in high school. And, um, and this is the first time I really I experienced loss on a personal level. Loss of a, a, one of my members of my flock, the person I was shepherding and ministering to and preaching the Word of God to. So when I was there, um, I mean, I was just grieving. I was just, I was just sad. I was just weeping. And... Um, Last thing I need is someone to come and tell me, James, why are you crying? What's the use? You can't bring him back. Uh, what's the, you know, hey James, what's the use of crying over spilled milk? I don't need to hear that. There's no benefit. There doesn't produce anything. Why are you crying? Right. In times like that, we don't ask ourselves, what good can I accomplish if I cry for the next hour? We don't ask that question. Times like that, the feeling of grief is an end in itself. It is there spontaneously. It is not performed as a means to anything else. It is not decided upon. It comes from deep within the core of our being. We just grieve because we're sad over the loss, period. Whether it comforts us or not, we grieve. Well, same thing with worship. Same thing. It is an end to itself. We do not worship on a calculated way to gain some tangent benefit from worship. We don't worship to cure our depression. 
We don't worship to grow as a believer. We don't worship to feel something. We are to worship because Christ is worthy, period. That's it. We worship because we love God. We worship because God is worthy. It is the proper thing to do as we behold the beauty of Christ. It is the appropriate response to God's grace and mercy given to us on the cross. Period. We don't worship as a means to a greater end. Worship is the end. That is why we live. It is the chief aim of life. We worship for its own sake. Mary isn't doing this for any other reason. She's not doing this to look godly. She's not doing this to be noticed, to be esteemed, to be praised. She's worshiping Christ. Because that's the aim of her life. They all missed it, especially Judas. But not Christ. Christ calls her act beautiful. And in parallel passages in Matthew and Mark, Christ says, every time the gospel is preached, her act will be declared and taught and remembered because she reminds believers what worship is. Third truth we learn from Mary's act of worship is that true worship is costly. True worship is costly. You know, I don't know where Mary got this perfume from. Where does a young gal get a perfume that's worth a year's wages? Now, I I did some research and I found some things on the internet. But you can, you know, those are very unreliable, right? When you find things on the internet, especially the font's kind of weird and the background is colored and that music going on, you know, I don't know. Academic value of this website. So I'm not going to share that this morning. Um, but we really don't know, right? But you just got to think, she wasn't keeping this um, perfume for the burial of someone she loves, right? Because she didn't use it on Lazarus, right? I wonder if Lazarus say, how come when I died, you, know, you give me like Savon version of perfume, and when Jesus, you give, her the good, you give him the good stuff. So I don't think she was saving it for burial, because if she was, she would use it on Lazarus. There's a good possibility it was given to her by her father to be used on her wedding, day of her wedding. Right. And uh, such perfume were used on special occasions. So for a young single gal, what's a special occasion? Right. Then a wedding, then her wedding. And she was saving it. And it was so costly, I doubt she purchased it herself. It was given to her by someone very special, most likely her dad. Well, she was saving this and for her, it wasn't just a monetary value. It was what it represented, I believe. It meant something really dear to her, special to her, especially if it was marriage. She was waiting, keeping it for her wedding day. But when she saw Christ and saw the beauty of Christ, she broke the jar and she poured it completely and anointed Christ with this precious oil. Um, most likely the jar was not like a jar where you can pour it out without breaking the jar. Um, it's like, you know, my dad says, Christmas, birthday, Father's Day, James, I want you to just give me one thing. He, want, he wants Old Spice. I don't know why. 
He loves Old Spice. So, it's easy shopping for my dad, because if he comes and you touch it with him, you know what it is, right? It's Old Spice. But Old Spice bottles, you can't, if you want more of that stuff, you can't really pour it. It's made in a way where you can only dab a little bit at a time. Only if you really want a double dose of Old Spice, you've got to break that jar to pour it on yourself. Or same thing, this alabaster jar was created that, that way. It was so precious that it could only come out a little bit at a time. So Mary didn't just want to dab on a little bit, give Christ, you know, one, you know, a little, few drops of her precious oil. No, she wanted to give it all. She broke the jar and poured it all upon Christ. Teaches us to salvi- that true worship costs. You know, salvation is free. But everything else in the Christian life costs. It's so important. Salvation is free, but you want to be sanctified, you have to pay. You have to pay. Worship costs. True worship. You want to be holy, then you have to pay a price. You can't be watching things on TV, movies, music, some friends. No, it's going to cost. You want to know the Word of God, it's not free. You have to pay, right? You have to go without. You have to, you have to suffer. You have to sit. You have to concentrate. You want to you pray? You have to pay. I mean, you have to like give of yourself. Right? You want to minister to people? Well, you got to pay, right? You got to just give a part of your heart. You got to suffer to minister to believers and to save the lost. You want to be an evangelist? You want to be a missionary? It's not free. Right? You're going to have to suffer and give part of yourself. Well, likewise with true worship. True worship costs. It's not free. It costs you something. We'll delve into that more. Second Samuel 24, 21-25. David wanted to build an altar to the Lord and sacrifice to Him and worship God. Aruna said, take whatever you want, it's free. David replied, no. I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. If it costs me nothing to worship God, then it's not true worship. True worship costs. So what does it cost? I think it's really internal. You know, the jar is not the monetary value of the perfume. It's not the thing itself, but what it meant to her in her heart. Right? Uh, maybe I, we can just kind of maybe guess that most likely she saw that perfume and she valued it a little too much. It was a little too important for her. It was a source of distraction. Maybe she idolized what that jar represented. Her future. Her future joy. Earthly comfort. Earthly desires. Marriage. Security. Family. She wanted to worship Christ. So she laid it on Christ. And gave her heart to the Lord. And that's what it costs, ultimately, when we worship Christ. You can't worship Christ genuinely if you have any earthly non-negotiables in your heart. 
not a possibility. If you, if you approach Christ and you desire something in this world that is non-negotiable, we talked about last week, I must be successful. I want success and Christ. I want beautiful children who go to good schools and Christ. I want successful ministry. I want money. I want comfort. I want happiness and Christ. You do that. And there is no genuine worship. There is no true worship. True worship is Christ alone. And in your heart, when you worship, you give up those dreams. You give up those aspirations, those earthly desires. And you want Christ alone. Pragmatism will tell you, no, that's too much. That's too costly. You don't have to give Christ everything. You can have both. True worshiper says no. Uh, More important than all things is the worship of Christ. It's the obedience to Christ. The final truth is that true worship is produced only by a humble heart. The prerequisite of true worship is humility. Um, It was shameful for a woman to have her hair unbound. It was shameful. Um, in fact, one step in stoning a woman in Numbers chapter 5 before you stone an adulteress is to unbound her hair. It's a sign of shame. Here Mary pours the oil upon Christ and she unbounds her hair and wipes his feet, his feet with her hair. You know what? Reflects true humility. The Greek word for worship is proskuneo. And the literal rendering of that word is to kiss the feet of the king. And that's exactly what Christ is doing. Reflects her humility. Reflects her true worship. She values Christ above herself, above her dignity. She sees herself as an unworthy slave considers it a privilege to wash his feet with her hair. Later on, we'll study that the disciples didn't even think about washing Lord's feet with their hands. Mary does it with her own hair. What a godly woman this Mary was. She was an avid learner. She was a great listener to the Word of God. She refused to be distracted away from the feet of Christ to listen to His teachings. She loved and adored the Lord. She, is a, she was a genuine worship, worshiper of Christ. Worshiper in spirit and in truth. May uh, this example just stir our hearts and teach us to be worshipers as well. Four final thoughts just to review our main points this morning. <clears throat> the priority of worship. Just ask, let me ask you personally, does your life revolve around worship? Does your life revolve around worship? Or does the worship of God revolve around your life? Is your life, is your priority in life the worship of Christ? Or is your priority something else? And I'll tell you people, it's a matter of survival at this point. If you want to survive as a Christian, worship must be a priority. If worship isn't, we will see the slippery slope 
of the believer inching towards pragmatism and worldliness. You see this. I see believers and their eyes are glazed. Like they're just, life has overwhelmed them. They're overwhelmed by worry and anxiety, concern for this world. They're so secular in their mindset at the joy of the Christian life, passion for Christ, desire, heart for worship is gone. You look at them and their just eyes are glazed over and they're just too busy with the world. They're just tired. Right? It's a matter of survival. If you want to survive and thrive as a Christian, worship is the only, um, only medicine. It's the only answer. It's worship your priority. Secondly, what is your chief ambition? What is your ambition in life? What is your chief aim? Why do you live? Do you live to worship the Lord? Thirdly, uh, some spiritual surgery. What is a non-negotiable in your heart? You know, God knows your heart and you know your heart. As David prayed, search my heart, test my thoughts, see if the Lord reveal if there's any un- uh, offensive way before you, God. What's the uh, secret desire, the secret, unspoken, non-negotiable in, heart, in your heart that prevents you from worshiping the Lord? Is it truly Christ alone? Or is it Christ and something else? Right. It'll come out, guys. You know, life, way, we live in a fallen world, the way God designed it. James 1, 3, consider it pure joy, whatever you face, trials of many kinds. Because trials come to squeeze out, to reveal what's in your heart. And so these things will come out. Right. Your desires, your non-negotiables, earthly, sinful non-negotiables. Right. Are you going to deal with them matter-of-factly and say... I'm going to give it to the Lord, Christ alone. And finally, humility. Considering ourselves a privilege to worship our Lord. Let's pray. My Father, I am just utterly humbled by Mary's example. Um, here I am, a pastor and a spiritual leader um, leading the church and yet we as I gaze upon this young gal um, you know without theological training without really uh, advanced in ministry or yet just her heart before you and her love towards you and our pure devotion to worship you corrects, humbles, and teaches my heart. And I pray it teaches all of us that <clears throat> this is the, the priority of our lives. This is our chief aim. This is why we exist. This is the end of all things, the worship of you. Lord, may Mary's example uh, be clear, be vivid in our mind's eye. May it just really marinate through our souls, causing us to uh, really re-examine our love for you, re-examine our worship of you, to radically repent so that we might cherish you as you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.